this is a series of lectures about the idea of the canon in cinema. Exploding canons might sound more like Charge of the Light Brigade than talking about why some films are rated or valued more highly than others. But that's what I'm going to be talking about in this lecture. Canon with just one N. It's a rather solemn way of discussing what's in and what's out, what we think is most important. The idea goes back to antiquity, and it's more often been used in talking about, for instance, which books made it into the Bible, or what belongs in the canon of English poetry, or American novels, or abstract expressionist painting. Really, any attempt to say what's best in a particular category of work. Now, you might be thinking, why does any of this matter? Well, one reason is that canonic authors and works, classics we might call them, get much more attention than those outside the canon. This affects what's printed, what's in libraries, what's taught in schools and colleges. In a way, it's a self-perpetuating process, because when some works are widely available and better known, they remain better known, and what lies outside the canon suffers from relative neglect. Now, why should we bother about this in the case of cinema? Don't we have top 10 lists, box office champions lists? Indeed, don't we have websites like the Internet Movie Database, IMDB, which actually lists films according to which have been most highly valued by millions of users of the site? Surely that's an improvement on judgments made by a small group of critics who might be out of touch with wider taste. Perhaps. But just look at the IMDb Top 50, and you realise that it's heavily skewed towards recent films that are shown in big mainstream cinemas. The oldest films included are City Lights and M, both from 1931, ranked at number 43 and number 92. While another film, Hamilton, hasn't even reached the cinemas yet since it came out online in 2020. Given this heavy bias towards what's recent, we know that this list will change over time. So it's not really a very good guide to establishing what are the defining classics of cinema. So what do we mean by canonicity? Well, classic works and their authors are what have stood the test of time. They're not just a matter of fashion or of big marketing budgets, but works that people have come to value over a long period and for different reasons. One of the most interesting definitions of a classic that I know was put forward by the critic Frank Kermode. Here you see Frank Kermode, who I was privileged to work with at one time uh, when we worked on uh, a big exhibition about the millennium and the apocalypse back in the year 1999. Frank Kermode's great series of lectures on the classic really explains a shift in the meaning of classic, which he traces across history. Originally, a classic meant something that was eternal, was never going to move. Homer's Odyssey, uh, something of that kind. But there's a more modern sense of classic, which has come to be perhaps the most important for us, and that is works that embrace change, plurality, and secularization. For Frank Kermode, what makes a work classic in the modern sense is the capacity to be revalued over the long term. Now, for us, of course, Shakespeare is at the core of our sense of a classic. 
But actually, Shakespeare's position wasn't that widely accepted until the mid-18th century or so. Before that, there were many attempts to improve the plays and to make them acceptable. But through the 19th century, Shakespeare became central to histories of English literature, buttressed by star performers making their name in the plays, and of course, the birthplace of the Stratford-on-Avon tourism industry. Suppose we draw a parallel for the history of cinema. How about Charlie Chaplin, as central to the history of cinema? English literature may be a much bigger field than the history of cinema, but the presence of Chaplin is absolutely central to almost every history of cinema. Is this because he was supremely popular in the late teens and 20s? That must be the reason. But also perhaps because of the esteem in which he was held by the first critics and historians of cinema. So fast forward now to the moment when critics were invited to vote for the first time for the top 10 greatest films of all time. That was in 1952. It was organized by the journal Sight and Sound. And the result, as you can see there on the left, was that two of Chaplin's films were in the top 10, which really proves just how canonic judgments had become embedded. Considering that very few of those who were voting in 1952 could have refreshed their memory of Chaplin's Gold Rush or City Lights, they must have been relying on memory or reputation or a combination of these. Now, cinema canons are very different from literary ones because they're premised on cinema having been a global phenomenon from the start, even if it became dominated by the early US studios in the late teens of the last century. Literary canons obviously have a strong basis in national literatures, French, German, Russian, etc. But cinema is assumed to be international, which leaves a problem for national cinemas, which may have little visibility on the world's screens. And this problem is acute for one cinema in particular, Britain's, in view of the shared language, shared personnel and shared facilities. UK as, if you like, Hollywood's extra studio. So we have familiar cases, for instance, of Stanley Kubrick uh, making all his films really in Britain. Uh, Star Wars, early Star Wars films all being made in Britain. And Harry Potter, but being made by an American studio in Britain. It's confusing. Canonic ranking often reflects critics' desire to pay tribute to the importance of some non-American national cinemas at periods in cinema history. So Soviet, Japanese, German, Italian, and French films have all been represented in lists of great films since 1952, along with American films. Three British-born directors have appeared in the Sight and Sound top 10 director lists of 1992 and 2002. Chaplin, Hitchcock, and Lean. But we can assume that these were all there on the basis of their American studio-backed work. Historically, only one British film has ever appeared in the Sight and Sound International Critics' 10 best list, and that's David Lean's Brief Encounter, which very briefly was number 10 in 1952. Subsequently, the highest British entry has been The Third Man, coming in at number 35 in the 2002 poll.
So what does this poll tell us? And there you can see our brief encounter figured very briefly back in, in 1952. And then, by the way, the figure on the right there is Penelope Houston, the long-serving editor of Sight and Sound, who really steered the magazine towards becoming a central resource in terms of taking the temperature of world cinema. And there is a brief summary from the Sight and Sound website of how the poll has gone every 10 years since. You can actually check this out on the BFI's website for yourself and see what the shifts have been and indeed what the shifts have not been because for a very long period indeed, the single film that dominated, that came number one decade after decade was Citizen Kane by Orson Welles. You see the figure of Welles standing at the centre there. That was only changed in 2012, which was the last of the polls, by Hitchcock's vertigo rising to the top. What do these 10 yearly polls really tell us? Well, essentially, what they tell us is that critical opinion has been very conservative, very conscious of precedent, very Western, and largely static for 50 years. There were a few small changes in 2012, but not so many. However, alongside critics' polls, of course, we have many other kinds of polls. We have IMDb, uh, as I've already mentioned, and we have box office. Box office results, which are perhaps unique to cinema as a measure of, well, value, certainly a measure of success. As we all know, films are routinely judged by their early release box office, resulting in a financial canon which bears little or no relation to a critical canon. In fact, while I was working on a study for the British Film Institute back in 2007, Stories We Tell Ourselves, which was about the cultural impact of British cinema, I made the point that any measurement of the true cultural impact of films would need to take account of a growing number of other indicators. Neither the Sight and Sound 10 yearly poll nor box office ranking are remotely adequate for judging the cinema canon. So what is? Well, in Stories We Tell Ourselves, we proposed an extended range of indicators. Restoration. Does a film get restored? Does it appear in new formats like DVD? Does it go online stream? Even the ranking in retrospective polls. But here we were only dealing with British cinema. Later, in another study for the British Film Institute and the Film Council, which was called Opening Our Eyes, we looked at the wider picture. What did cinema, all cinema, mean to a statistical cross-section of British citizens of all ages and ethnicities? Here, of course, not surprisingly, with the range of films picked out was much, much wider and much closer to, although not the same as, the box office ranking. That study was done in 2011, and it was done at a time when... Um, Soon, it was done at a time soon after the release of the King's Speech. So the King's Speech played a very important part in that study. It was very fresh in people's minds. If we repeated that study today, we would get, again, very recent films that people have seen that are fresh in their minds. Some of the most interesting, frequently cited films were Schindler's List and Avatar, and Slumdog Millionaire. 
And then there were two old favourites that appear in almost all listings, Titanic and the Shawshank Redemption. Here we're dealing with lists or canons based on something like emotional impact, quite different from box office and, and different from critics' choices too. Schindler's List was widely shown in schools as part of the modern history teaching of the Holocaust. Shawshank Redemption seems to be very much a product of the, the video and the internet age, and it's long come top of the IMDb polls, which really make it one of the most popular films of all time. But the two Cameron films are really rather interesting, the two films directed by James Cameron, that is. Titanic has led to a fantastic boom in, let's say, Titanic tourism in Belfast, my own home city, uh, with a museum and uh, a lot of commemoration of the fact that the Titanic was built in Belfast. Avatar, when it was released in cinemas back in 2009, 2010, really introduced digital cinema to the wider world, as well as 3D. So video has certainly had a huge impact on canons of all kinds. Viewers have been able to collect their own personal libraries and to review uh, these films endlessly. And for instance, in our survey, Opening Our Eyes, we collected very high scores for Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and Dirty Dancing, which are much, much reviewed films. In 2022, next year, Sight and Sound will almost certainly carry out another worldwide poll of critics and filmmakers. And that'll be the first since streaming became a worldwide phenomenon. It'll also be the first, of course, since the pandemic, which I believe has changed our, our relationship to cinema's past and present. Many other factors, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, these will all have an effect on the films that we decide are the greatest films of all time. Can they be reflected in simple lists of 10 best or will generational, locational and other factors lead to a splintering of any consensus about the best films. There's another consideration too about canons, their impact on programming. I would argue that canons underpin much programming, whether it's the programming of cinemas, when cinemas reopen, let us hope, or television, of course, or video, or indeed streaming platforms. For instance, when we launched the BFI's uh, original video um, catalog, back in uh, 1990, and this is the uh, speech that actually I drafted for Sir Richard Attenborough, who was then chairman of the, the BFI, to uh, introduce the Connoisseur video label, which he was very enthusiastic about doing. We launched that at Sotheby's. <laughs> um, I would argue that, that video has had a, a huge impact on the way we think about the history of cinema. When we launched it, our intention was not to offer video as an alternative to watching films in the cinema, but really to make very important films available which simply could not be seen in cinemas. And here's a very good example. The Seven Samurai, Akira Kurosawa's great uh, film. There was only one print in Britain at this time. It was a huge, heavy, expensive, valuable print. And the distributor was not prepared to let it be widely shown, certainly not for single screenings. 
So really, if you lived anywhere outside of London, where it was shown occasionally, you had very little chance of ever seeing the Seven Samurai. When we launched on video, this is our video cassette, <laughs> um, it sold thousands of copies. And I do feel that we did a great deal to, to shift, to enlarge the British population's understanding of what world cinema could be. And I was delighted to discover that somebody was recently selling one of those original video cassettes on, on eBay, which proves that it was, you know, it's been a lasting impact. So films like The Seven Samurai, the work of Jean Renoir, the work of Orson Welles, Max Offels, the core of arthouse film repertoire. This was made available finally on video. Which brings us back to where we started. Is there a core curriculum of works that are generally agreed to be good, important, and worth studying in cinema? Should school children, for instance, be taught alongside Shakespeare, or maybe instead of Shakespeare, the works of Alfred Hitchcock? Or is all this ranking and selection just old-fashioned? But if it is, what do we put in its place to encourage viewers to range more widely? Programming, whether it's for cinemas, channels, streaming platforms, involves making choices. This one rather than that one. And it involves taking audiences with you. Today, with streaming increasingly important, the way that most films reach most viewers, under certainly under current conditions, we are seeing what may be a massive shift in taste that will ultimately affect the future canon. In my next two lectures in this series, I'll be looking at what may change the film canon. Will it be demands to break out of the tradition of white male directors or to range far beyond Europe and North America? Maybe we'll discover if the sight and sound poll is run again in 2022. Let me end this first lecture by quoting the great Italian writer Italo Calvino, who was also a passionate film enthusiast as well. Calvino wrote a famous article, Why Read the Classics? And he gave a total of 14 reasons why we might, we should read and reread the classics. I've adapted that, putting film in place of book. And here is Calvino's list in the filmic version. I think it still makes sense. And I'm pretty sure that Calvino would have approved of representing his reasons for valuing the classics in terms of film. And can I just suggest while you read this slide that if you want to sample for yourself some of the great films that did come top of the poll in the Sight and Sound uh, Critics poll, you could find online Orson Welles' Citizen Kane or Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves or Hitchcock's Vertigo three top films during the entire history of the Sight and Sound poll. That might be good preparation before you tune in for the second of these lectures. Thank you.